Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Oh, hi, Jill. Happy 2019, everyone. Uh, Grind My Gears is back in action. Get out the confetti, pop the champagne. We are here to have a good old time. (laughs) That's right. And this week, we're going to be diving into how we can fit crypto into traditional portfolio theory, or really, can we? You know, this is this is something that a lot of people have been trying to do over the years of, you know, whether it's sort of VC thought leadership, whether it's uh, the more kind of hedge fund style of investing in crypto, where does crypto fit into the investment landscape? Um, and this has obviously been extremely top of mind as we've moved out of 2018 kind of into the crypto winter of how should this stuff trade? Well, and there's a lot of capital out there. So I was reading something earlier this week that said there's about $6 billion in total allocated to crypto funds. And I believe that number was both across more traditional venture equity investing strategies, as well as token investing strategies, which are now often combined in this crypto fund thesis, which I refuse to call a hedge fund, because there are really very few people who hedge or even manage risk in crypto. People like to just by all risk, all in. But what I go back to, and this actually is listening to a great podcast that um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management does, did this great podcast. And one of the things he was talking about was pattern matching and investing. And this is something that comes up often with venture investors. Really, if you're a VC, the reason VCs participate in so much marketing and thought leadership is you're really trying to demonstrate your ability to pattern match and identify some of those um, those, tra- those key data points you're looking for that are going to indicate success in early stage companies. But I think the story around crypto here is fundamentally broken. So you have a group of people who believe in pattern matching and who've approached investing that way for quite some time. But the problem is, is you can't copy paste Bitcoin or Ethereum success, which is, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand percent return, depending on when you entered, you can't copy and paste that over and over and over again. And so the question is, how do you really start to distinguish what to look for when you look at these new assets? That's right. And, you know, for me, the the kind of highest level point around this is one that you actually just touched on, which is that there's not one type of crypto fund out there, right? Like you have a lot of them just call themselves crypto hedge funds, but most of them actually operate more as venture investors getting into private deals very early stage. Some of them do operate more in the kind of hedge fund style, but certainly not in like a long short capacity. It's usually just sort of long only buy and hold, trading it around, speculative. And just as there's not one type of crypto fund, there's also not one type of crypto asset. 
And I think that this can be a point of confusion because we love to think of this market as so immature that there is sort of a one-size-fits-all narrative that that we can work with to make sense of these assets as we're doing this kind of VC-style thought leadership Olympics here. But in reality, the market has matured past that point. And indeed, it's been mature past that point of having a one-size-fits-all narrative for years now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have to start to disaggregate it into Bitcoin as the store of value and, you know, is maybe akin to gold in that way. Um, ICOs, you know, many of those are still private deals. And so that is the kind of more VC investment strategy. Now we have things called security tokens. It remains to be seen what happens with that, but that is maybe more akin to private equity. So we have to start to create these sort of sub-asset classes. Crypto itself is not an asset class. It encompasses many. And I would I would agree with that. So the the themes I look at and the themes I think we can talk about that will be interesting. So I want to outline five and we can go back and forth, delve into them. But first I would say the question I ask myself is number one, does differentiation matter between assets? So if I'm looking at three, four, ten crypto assets, cryptocurrencies tokens, and they all have similar features, how do I differentiate? How do I evaluate the efficacy of marketing and PR, the strength of a team's network? What are the key characteristics that in one asset category make one thing successful versus not? Now, once you can do that, number two, once you can identify the trends for success, that leads to commodification, right? And this is kind of the trend of once you know the rules of the game, the game changes because if everyone knows the rules, they're going to optimize for those rules. And this Mm -hmm. is why investing is so hard. No one is consistently successful at investing, or I should say very few people are because of this constant adaptation. So if you're identifying these assets and trying to sort through how to differentiate those that will accrue value versus those that won't, how do you avoid that commodification curve? Then third, once a company has success with a strategy, does that mean someone else can replicate it? I think in the crypto ecosystem in particular, there is this belief that copy-paste will work. And we see this with the narratives people choose to use, the positioning, the language. But I don't think copy-paste works. And I think it creates some real challenges, in particular for issuers. Then fourth is the general thesis. So can you spot uniqueness as an investor? And differentiation is very different from uniqueness. Differentiation is about marketing. Uniqueness is about finding things that have not been explored yet. And in this instance, I think a lot of what uniqueness is about is finding gaps in the market that have not been filled yet or gaps in the asset portfolio that have not been filled yet. And we can talk about the instruments and products and vehicles we think are missing. And then lastly, um, the fifth piece is what business models work. Now, I know protocols and tokens are not companies, but let's be honest, many of them operate like companies and they're going to need a business model. And we've talked about the business model challenge before, so I'm not going to reiterate it here. But tech has very little data. VC, for that reason, can't be systematic. Although people are trying to make VC investing systematic, um, it's really a backwater for data. It's very hard to find high quality data. In crypto markets, I think anyone who's tried to do um, systematic or fundamentals-driven research and investing, 
it's even worse, right? We don't even know what the data point should be. So the fifth thing I just like to talk about is how do you think about data and the role that data plays in defining your strategy to identifying assets? So to recap that, let me know if I've got it. The five points are basically differentiation between these crypto assets, uh, identifying how they differentiate and how that might lead to the commodification of it, um, replication of strategies across companies or protocols, uniqueness of those, and then finally the business models and the data associated with them, right? Exactly. Great. So to dive into the the first one, the differentiation between assets, I mean, I would put them into sort of three very broad categories, and then maybe we can drill down even further of you have your kind of store of value assets, I would say sort of the Bitcoins of the world. Um, You have the very early stage protocols that are emerging that are mostly sort of app coins or utility tokens or whatever you want to call them that ICO'd over the last couple of years. And those are kind of more VC style investments. And then Mm -hmm. again, you have like security tokens, which I would put in the category of private equity. It, It remains to be seen what really emerges from that. But I think that the early use cases we're seeing are mostly around illiquid markets being tokenized and this idea that that's somehow going to bring liquidity to them, which I'm a little skeptical of, but. I don't even think it's illiquid markets. I actually think what security tokens attempt to resolve, which is interesting, is creating a pricing mechanism for assets that are not priced regularly. Like a piece of art only gets priced when it goes to auction. And so to me, what's kind of interesting here is can you start to create a marketplace because things are being traded? It's a function of the fact that these things are now tradable. Can you start to create a more dynamic data market for how price fluctuates over time? I still and I think- struggle to see how a token helps with that. Like, And to me, <laughs> that is that that is precisely liquidity. That is what I mean about the liquidity issue of just where things are being bought and sold and at what frequency and really how much you're moving the market in order to buy and sell something. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's very interesting to to bring greater transparency to markets, but I, I don't think that you need a blockchain to do so. But we <laughs> sure. should have a whole episode about security tokens. I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole right now. <laughs> I'm not ready to. I have not made up my mind yet. I think the one thing I will say in particular about the three categories you outlined is I do feel that once a category has been outlined and one successful raise gets done around a particular narrative, then you start to see tens, if not hundreds of impersonators who basically glom onto that strategy and try to replicate it. So I do think there's this chronic copy-paste problem And it's been interesting to watch how these copy-paste tokens perform because there isn't really a whole lot that's so different between these assets. And I guess you can call me a bit of a minimalist because I simply don't believe that you're going to have tens of thousands or even thousands of different stores of value. To me, that's number one, too confusing. But number two, it kind of defies the whole point of being a store of value. I I think that's right. I struggle to see how really fragmented markets will persist in this space. 
Um, but, you know, I also could imagine there being sort of regionalized markets or, um, or, or else just, you know, plays around better branding or better user experience. I mean, we already see this. Like, I think that the persistence of Doge, Dogecoin actually is a great example of this, where what what is the point of Dogecoin? It's, I guess it's a store of value. It's kind of, it's almost kind of like an NFT in a sense, because it's just kind of a meme. It's a collectible in a way. Um, and so, you know, I can, I can imagine things like that persisting and creating some degree of fragmentation. But to me, the differentiation, it, there are two levels of differentiation here that we're talking about. First is differentiating between just these different categories of cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. right? Like the store of value coins, the VC style ICOs, security tokens, whatever it might be. And that is even still a point of confusion. Jimmy Song had this great tweet the other day about how people tend to make a category error when it comes to evaluating Bitcoin, for example. And his point with this was that people tend to think of it as like a cutting edge technology product that needs to innovate or die and needs to be rapidly growing. And in reality, and I would agree with this, because its use case is store of value, it should instead be evaluated as a form of money, which is like the opposite of innovate or die. You know, you want something that is going to be predictable. <laughs> and, you know, I think that you could possibly even say the opposite of Ethereum. It's it's kind of an interesting debate that I have with myself of where Ethereum fits within these categories, but they certainly take a much more innovative approach than, than the Bitcoin core dev team. And so, you know, how do you assess that? Is that a bad thing if you're putting it in the sort of Bitcoin store of value category? Or is that actually a necessary thing if you put it still in this sort of ICO VC style hyper growth investment technology mm -hmm. investment category? I don't know. See, I put Ethereum more in a digital utility category where I liken it. And I know the analogy is overused, but something like oil, where you actually use it to perform computation on the Ethereum network. And arguably, if there are enough dApps, dApps, whatever you want to call them on the Ethereum network, or there are enough ICOs, honestly, which seems to be the more compelling use case um, these days, then that has, has value. And the hard part is, is that none of these narratives are yet defined. I think they're becoming more defined. In Bitcoin, we seem to go through phases where we went through a phase where Bitcoin was amazing and elegant and so beautifully designed. And then it became, oh, well, Bitcoin is not complex enough. It doesn't allow for robust enough expression. Therefore, we need thousands of other protocols that are Turing complete and have uh, a lot more scripts and that can do a lot more functions. And now we're back to kind of Bitcoin can do all of these things. We don't have to jam it into the core protocol layer. I do think narratives play an important uh, role here, which is where, again, I think one of the, the questions I look at is how are people messaging this and what does the marketing PR look like? I think one thing the Ethereum community has done really well is when they identify a narrative, people tend to aggregate around that narrative and use the same language and talk about it in the same way, which helps perpetuate that narrative. And I think in other assets, it's a little more challenging in Bitcoin in particular, because 
the Bitcoin community really has so many different people and so many different local iterations. It's We don't get as much of that. But I do think um, my thesis is uniqueness is really fundamental here. And I don't see so many projects these days that are unique in some way that offers something that you can't do better with the existing technology. And I believe this is kind of what you were alluding to is, well, what feature set do you really need? If you're constantly innovating, you know, Facebook, uh, Bitcoin's not Instagram. So you don't need to constantly be making new features. You're not, you're not trying to win quote unquote consumers or, or use cases. Yeah. So there is this tension between how unique something it is when it's initially conceptualized and how much is sort of added to it or adapted to it as it grows. This is my problem with Zcash actually, right? Zcash was very similar to Bitcoin when it began. And now they keep innovating around Zcash. I know you spent a lot more time on Zcash than, than I have, but they seem to be constantly innovating and rolling out new features. And as a result, the uniqueness proposition sort of changes. Yeah, I mean, it, it changes. I think that it's debatable, again, whether or not that's a weakness or a strength. And again, it depends on what category you put it in. Um, and, you know, I, I think about the different ways that we have of evaluating just you know, forget cryptocurrencies for a second, but just evaluating investments, evaluating specifically technology investments or else commodity and monetary investments. And it comes back to to that point of, you know, is this is this a form of sort of digital gold that we're trying to assess the value of? Or is this a VC style investment where the most important thing is just finding product market fit? And I, mm-hmm. I look at Ethereum or, you know, any number of coins that have ICO'd over the past several years, not just in this most current boom, but I, I still see a lack of real product market fit. I think that Bitcoin, because it's it's so humble almost in in what its market is, is the only one that has really found that in a material way. And so if if none of them have found product market fit, then I think that it still makes sense to continue to evaluate them as like very early stage, almost seed style VC investing, as opposed to evaluating these things as money or digital gold in the way that Bitcoin is. So I I would kind of just separate it out as like Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is in a class of its own here. And then you have and the, market, and the market proves that Jill because Bitcoin's still the dominant asset. A hundred percent. It's a hundred percent of the market cap. And what's funny is that's what people want to hold. We went through the phase of crypto funds, which was a fun and interesting phase. But I think there are now a lot of investors who allocated capital into crypto funds. End of 2017, feeling good, up and to the right, great. 2018, not so good lost 70 to 80% of value. I've heard some numbers that are lower, some numbers that are higher. But at the end of the day, people ask themselves, well, if I would have just stayed exposed to Bitcoin, number one, I wouldn't have paid the two and 20. (laughs) So that would have been different. And why am I paying someone to perform worse than Bitcoin beta? I think this is the fundamental question, particularly as we think about how these things are marketed and sold, look, it may very well be that a lot of ICOs really should have been treated and characterized more like seed stage or series A stage tech companies. And that's fine. 
But the problem is the way in which people invested in them and the way people viewed them was the same as Bitcoin or Ethereum. And so the mental trap second is it creates an expectation. Right. And what we're seeing now in the markets, everyone's looking for narratives. So just this week, uh, this was a Bitcoin narrative, but, oh, you know, a Russian economist close to the Kremlin says Russia is going to ditch U.S. treasuries and buy Bitcoin. That's pretty far fetched. <laughs> then we see other narratives. Tron is going to buy BitTorrent and make a BitTorrent token. Um, there was 51% attack on Ethereum Classic. It didn't really have a big impact on price. So there are all of these different narratives that are now starting to emerge. And what I think is so interesting is when I think about venture investing, what I always think about is, okay, what is the price I get in at? What is the price I pay for exposure to a company? But more importantly, how do I think I'm going to materialize any value that's created by that company? Yep. And we see this problem with you know the Ubers of the world staying private for a really long time. IPOs haven't performed well. These companies are staying private forever. So we're seeing Series Gs, Series Hs. And these companies are worth billions of dollars on paper, but how are investors going to take that paper mark and turn it into zeros in their bank account? And I see the same problem in crypto and the same problem in the way these assets are treated is number one, you have to control your entry price. So, you know, let's take one example that is easy to look at. Let's look at Dentacoin, right? Dentacoin may have been a great buy at one one hundredth of a cent, but is it a great buy at one cent? Probably not. And then the question is long-term, in the short term, there may be momentum around this Dentacoin idea. There may be momentum around a concept, but if everyone or half the people in the market try to sell, what we're going to see is just a complete erosion of the price of this asset. And so I think there are these really fundamental questions that people aren't asking. Yes, a project may be a good idea. Yes, a token may have some sort of differentiated or unique value. But I think the third sort of data point is, is it a good buy at the price you're able to get in? Yeah, I mean, something really interesting that we're getting at here is that what a lot of investors did over the last couple of years, and I'm certainly guilty of this, I'm sure you are as well, was use Bitcoin and Ethereum, but just call it Bitcoin for now, as a comp for all of these other coins that were coming to market. And that's, I think, a totally unfair comparison because Bitcoin is the only one that's found product market fit. It sits in kind of this class of its own as the store of value digital gold. It's not trying to be some utility token, whatever. And so using the Bitcoin price movement to try and price the fair value of your ICO is it should be considered completely off base. But the other problem with this is that, of course, all of these things just trade based on what the market perceives or chooses to believe that it is. And so, you know, this helped a lot of ICOs on the way up that were using Bitcoin as the comp. But I think that this will also hurt Bitcoin in the next big kind of not just crypto market downturn, but big macro market downturn, where I firmly believe that Bitcoin should be viewed as a hedge in in a market downturn, just like gold is. It's placed, it should be seen as a flight to safety asset. It's you know inherently deflationary, et cetera, et cetera. But I I suspect that Bitcoin would probably actually trade very poorly 
because people be still thinking of it in this other category as sort of VC style, highly speculative technology investing. Um, Mm. And, and I think that, you know, this just comes back to what you're saying about the importance of narratives, the importance of keeping an eye on not just what would seem to be rational, but really what the market is choosing to believe about these assets. My great example for this is Tesla, right? Mm-hmm. I know I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people in the crypto ecosystem about Tesla. First of all, they ask me why I'm wasting brain cycle <laughs> looking at Tesla. And second of all, they think my view on Tesla is completely ridiculous. But I think the Tesla narrative, there's this group of people who are always going to be Tesla bulls right? They believe that Elon Musk is an entrepreneur and CEO of a company. The vision of electric vehicles and um, batteries, the, the, what Tesla represents is so valuable that they don't, they can't imagine any other world than one in which it's really valuable. And then there's a group of people on the other side who view the world completely the other way. And then there's people who just look at entry price and exit price. So I look at something like Tesla. If Tesla is at 400, I think that's overpriced. If it's at 250, I think that's pretty reasonable. So again, to me, what's missing from all of these narratives is, well, what might be a reasonable price based on what's happened in the prior six, nine, 12 months? What is a reasonable expectation for what the future of this might look like? These are the harder questions to ask. And what this goes back to, I think, is fundamental market structure. Number one, you're not served any data when you go onto a crypto exchange, other than maybe seeing the depth of the order book and some basic price history. There's very little you're data, lucky so you don't know price history. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> what, what's so crazy to me, and I was just thinking about this the other day. I was thinking back on the Poloniex troll box. Do you remember the troll yeah, box? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so for those who are unacquainted with the finest of shitcoin exchanges, and I love Floniax, I think they are great for the ecosystem, um, so no disrespect there, but they listed a lot of assets. So in 2017, when ICO mania started happening and the price of Ether started skyrocketing, the price of Ripple started skyrocketing, the price of Bitcoin started skyrocketing, everyone flood, flooded Poloniex. And what they would do is they would sit in this chat called the troll box. And it's part of the interface. So you can kind of pull it up. I think they disabled it now that circle bought it, but I heard it's coming back, which I'm excited yes. about. But you circle in there, Reddit and the other night said they may bring back the, the troll box. So exciting. But you just sit there and I mostly just enjoy the troll box for pure entertainment purposes, because the things people in there were saying, like, oh, Ripple's going to go to $100. I'm like, okay, so Ripple's going to be bigger than the global economy. That's phenomenal. Thank you for that. But people would be sitting there and all people would be doing is just racking off tickers. BNT, BNB, XTB, like all of these three letter acronyms, they had no idea what they meant. Absolutely no idea. Like if you asked a person, what is this asset? What does it do? Why is it unique? Why are you buying it? They would have no idea what to tell you. But it's so surreal thinking about that now. And I look at Binance, I look at Bitrex, I look at these exchanges that list tons of assets, and it kind of feels like there isn't really any strategy. Like people just go in there and they type in numbers or they look at what's going up in value. And it's just like... um, 
It's like playing what? slots at the casino. Kind of pick whatever machine looks cool totally. to you, it's and you roll with that. It's just gambling. It's just gambling. <laughs> it's insanity. <laughs> but that's what I think about. There's no data, right? There's no quantitative or qualitative information. Not even volatility data. Not even 52 week high, 52 week low. There's just so little data. And then I think there's also this fundamental difference between public and private markets and the information accessible to people in both. So in private markets, it's all about information asymmetry. It's all about leveraging your network. This is why some VCs can raise tons of money, like well-known managers, been in VC for a while, have big networks, and younger funds who are newer to the game, harder to raise money. The idea is that the longer you've been in the game, the more access to information deal flow you have. So you're going to have asymmetrical data, asymmetrical information in these private markets that informs you and enables you to make way better decisions. Public market is a little different, right? Public market, there's disclosures, data is much more accessible. This is why I like a lot of what Masari is trying to do with creating more public data for the crypto space. But there is such a fundamental mismatch in how this market gets treated based on the way that not just the market's structured, but the way that exchanges serve their customers. It's it's so baffling to me. Well, so in crypto, there's also this really funny phenomenon of what I would call understanding asymmetry or comprehension asymmetry as well. Because you can have people in these sort of, you know, public forums who are just playing the gambling game, who have all of the information, maybe they even know that Ethereum Classic, you know, has had a 51% attack happened in the last two weeks. But they don't fully sort of understand what that means or care or like, want to dive into it. And so, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's just another spin of the roulette wheel for them. Whereas if you're a a real investor in this space, if you're trying to actually make rational decisions, it's just like it's in your face all the time. Because, you know, let's say you went underweight or, you know, if if you could go short Ethereum Classic uh, in, in that scenario, like it actually outperformed Ethereum over the course of the last week, which is insane or verge also verge was another one that was 51 percent attacked and the price went up and i have to believe that a lot of the people involved in these markets again even if they're just playing the gambling game knew about this you know it's not like this is private market information in the sense that that a lot of vc is where it's actually you know there's no disclosure going on like these were news headlines but there just is a lack of the fundamental understanding of like what that means and then therefore what sort of rational impact that should have on these markets. I think what you're saying is one thing to have information, but another thing to use information. Definitely agree there. Definitely true. And then I think the second thing you're saying is people are going to be people and do dumb things. <laughs> People I mean, are not exactly. rational. Ourselves included, by the way. <laughs> I sometimes find myself believing things and and it's hard. I'm really, I've spent the last two months, I would say, like not so much in crypto and just reading and spending more time with people who challenge my view of the world and who view the world through a different lens because it's forced me to recognize sometimes I'll say something and I'll just sit there and I'll be like, that sounds so insane. Knowing what I know about the world, 
it's bizarre for me to think that because it's so irrational, but I think you get steeped in that mentality. But but let's go to a different topic. So we've talked, I think, quite quite a bit about the thesis, differentiation, data, how you evaluate these things. And I don't even want to get into valuation because it's just a icky and weird topic. But I'll talk a little bit about the, the idea of, okay, crypto itself is not one big asset class. I think what you said earlier, that it's several asset classes or analog to existing asset classes definitely makes sense. But what I want to talk about a little bit is in its current market structure, what we talk about all the time, are the institutions coming? Where are these new inflows coming from that are going to make the market go moon again? Where is this money coming from? And we've been hearing for almost the last 18 months now that the institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. <laughs> Get the lantern, Paul. Right through town. <laughs> the institutions are coming. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is, you know, that hasn't quite happened yet. So let's talk a little bit about what you and I see as some of the barriers to crypto being perceived as an asset class that's ready for not just institutional investment, but frankly, institutional products and services, meaning that, you know, your Goldman Sachs's, your JP Morgan's, your Schwab's and Fidelity's are offering access to these assets to their client base. Yeah. I mean, look, like we can talk about custody. We can talk about data transparency and standards. We can talk about compliance. We can talk about all of these things until the cows come home. But for me, the reason why institutions aren't in yet comes down to one thing, which is they don't care. This asset class or these asset classes, again, you know, crypto is not just one singular asset class. These asset classes are so microscopically minuscule to them that they don't have to care. And, you know, we started to see in 2017, like some of this nudge of like, okay, you can't ignore it. That was a product of two things. One, the, I think we have to at this point acknowledge that it was a speculative bubble around cryptocurrency that occurred in that year. And the second thing is volatility was at an all-time low in regular conventional markets. And so they were hungry for yield and for volatility from wherever they could find it. And lo and behold, crypto emerges into this speculative bubble. But now that that has popped and now that some volatility has returned to conventional markets, like that, that force isn't there. I think that to me, the most exciting institutional play happening in crypto remains fidelity because Abby Johnson, Fidelity CEO, has been in the space for a number of years now, mm-hmm. um, is is clearly dedicated, has spun off an institution purely focused on digital assets. And I think that that the sort of FOMO that a player like Fidelity could create amongst other institutions might be another force. But all of those other things, custody, compliance, data standards, et cetera, et cetera, That'll all get sorted out. Like financial institutions are great at figuring out these things as long as they're sufficiently motivated. Exactly. They will throw resources. They will throw the world's best engineers. They will throw whatever they need to at these problems. And that's, I view the world in a slightly similar way. Yes, the asset class is small. I also think there's another thing going on here. And this is something I go back to often 
it's that people just, the belief is not there, right? When people, the narratives around these, some of these assets in particular are so outside of the norm of what people are used to looking at or thinking about, the way the crypto community in particular talks about them is so esoteric and challenging. And sometimes, frankly, I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed to explain to people when they ask to me, oh, it's this token. I explain it and I listen to myself and I try to imagine you know, the person across the table from me who spent 30 years selling structured products <laughs> at <laughs> financial institution. I'm like, oh my God, I'm one of these insane people. I, to this person sitting across the table, even though in my world, I feel like I'm one of the more rational and pragmatic measured people, to the person sitting across the table from me, I'm a complete crypto nut job. Exactly. You just have this like out of body moment where you're like, oh my God, listen to me. This is, I, I need to stop talking right now. This is not good. Um, But I mean, I think that it, this this is a really interesting point, actually, and it goes back to the differentiation between yep. venture investing and basically any other type of investing out there, where in venture, you have the luxury of it being an assumption that you're going to be wrong 90% of the time, if not more. People want you to lose money. People are like, oh, you're going to lose a bunch of money, and that's cool because- You'll figure. <laughs> I mean, no one wants you to lose money, but the, the assumption is like you're going to be wrong nine times out of ten, and then the one that you're right on, it's going to win big, and you're going to hit it out of the park, and that's going to return the whole fund, right? So, although those dynamics are being challenged now too, sure. But this is sort of the the notion that people have around venture, and therefore people are very forgiving when venture investors are massively wrong about things, make mistakes, make bad investments, come out with these long thought leadership posts about the way that the world is going to be and turns out to be completely different. That is not the case if you're a hedge fund manager, if you're an executive at Fidelity or Goldman Sachs. like You don't get to be wrong in the same ways. If you are wrong, people call you out, people remember, and it affects the trajectory of your career. Mm-hmm. And so that's the other dynamic that I think, you know, for me being out in Silicon Valley, it, it can be very hard for people to understand like, well, why aren't these bigger institutions taking this risk? Like, it's just because they're, you know, these dinosaurs, they're very slow moving, they're boring, they're, you know, crotchety old men who, you know, can't get on board with it. It's not just that, it's that they don't have the luxury of being able to risk take in the same way that venture does. And, you know, for me, having moved out here from the East Coast, from working on Wall Street, I was shocked. I was like, why, you know, why are people making these huge bets in this way? And now that I have a much better and more nuanced understanding of how venture right. works, it makes total that's sense. The game. But try that's and explain that to an executive at, at Goldman that that's what they should be doing. And they'll look at you rightfully like you're crazy. I think that fundamental component, so what you've just described in my view is risk. And I know I've talked about this so much and at this point I sound like a broken record, but I really think the one thing that people in the crypto community don't ever account for properly is risk. And we saw this, we saw this all last year and all this year. 
banks and institutions, when they're selling assets to clients, they're helping clients figure out and price risk. And they themselves are figuring out and pricing risk. Like today, PG&E, one of the largest utility companies in this country, announced that they are filing for Chapter 11. And why are they filing for Chapter 11? Because they failed to appropriately account for a risk on their balance sheet. GE, same thing, right? (laughs) They had billions of dollars of losses in one of their businesses, not because they didn't have a good business plan. It's because they didn't account for their liabilities or their risk on their balance sheet in the right way. And I think what we're really talking about here is if I'm an institution and I'm trying to sell these assets, say cryptocurrencies, to my investors, I don't have a good way to price or even begin to quantify or qualify the risk of that investment. And after what we've just gone through, where we saw a loss of, in the case of Bitcoin, roughly 75% of value, in the case of some other assets, over 95% of value was vaporized, I really, as an institution, start to think about risk. Even if I do everything in a regulated way, just because you're regulated doesn't mean you're not going to lose money. And I think that's another mental trap people in the crypto space get into. They're like, oh, STOs, so much better. And I'm like, not better, because just because something's regulated doesn't mean it's less risky. It has no relationship with risk whatsoever. Yes, the operational risk and the business risk may be lower. So there will likely be a lower risk that the project's going to run off with your money or it's going to get spent on buying houses or whatever some of these ICOs spend their money on. But it doesn't change the risk profile of the asset. And that I think is the really difficult part as an institution. You never want to be in a situation where your clients come to you and they're losing money on a daily basis. While you're still making money, you're really all about lifetime value of a customer. And you want that customer to trade with you and to continue to buy products from you and continue to be a loyal customer. So that's what I think we're not capturing here as institutions looking at this world. They're trying to price the risk of entering this asset class. One is, is there anything in it for me? Is it big enough? But I think two really is, at this point in its life cycle, is the risk reward payoff there? And I don't think it is yet. I want to add something to this conversation about institutions as well, is I, I think that there's an assumption that institutional money means just sort of like, the friendly long only guys who are just going to come in and buy up a bunch of coins and sit on them and it's going to be great and we're all going to ride the wave higher. But, you know, I think that actually crypto is going to wind up being most interesting to vulture funds, to activist funds, um, you know, people do trying to attempt like hostile takeovers of networks, things like this, that we tend not to consider as players and also consequences of institutional money coming into the space. It's not all just sort of roses and inflows, you know, it's, it's going to be a much more complicated scene than that. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the hard part. Then that goes back to where we started this conversation. So one is, you know, how do we evaluate and price both reward And on the flip side, risk. So that to me goes back to just starting to come up with some frameworks for analysis and having 
some data to go on and maybe a longer history to help people start to really understand what the assets are and, and how they function, how these markets work. Part of it's also reporting practices and regulatory clarity and all of these like very, to me, very dull, dry topics. And I'm sure they're very exciting for lawyers, but to me, it's like, okay, that's, that's great. But the last component is products. So if you're an investor, how do you get exposure to these things? And the challenging thing here, I was joking earlier today that uh, one of the funny things is, you know, Gemini, this exchange here in New York, they're a trust company. They've been doing this whole marketing campaign where they're marketing the fact that they're regulated. Now, how many industries are you in where being regulated is a differentiator from marketing perspective? Probably only really crypto or new asset classes. But what I think is really interesting here is investors want to get exposure to products they trust with counterparties and issuers they trust. So the hard part here is what are the products going to be? It's not spot buying ICOs and crypto assets. People want all sorts of products. And today we saw the first articulation of what the future might look like. So LedgerX, who's a Bitcoin derivatives and options trading platform, um, created a volatility index. And their volatility index today, I believe, is only Bitcoin. And they mentioned with the introduction of this index, they're actually starting to look at creating volatility-related products, which I think is really exciting. So there's this whole product portfolio out there that needs to be created that allows people to actually do what so many people talk about, which is hedge and manage risk. So I'd love to get your take on that. I I suspect that the market is not yet ready for that, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario here where like, okay, you know, is the market not ready for it because those products don't exist or do the products not exist because there is not yet demand? I, my sense is that it's more of the latter, that there's not yet sufficient demand to create actual liquid viable markets for these types of derivatives and products. But, you know, I think that, I think that we we have to have moves like LedgerX creating the, the volatility index, um, even, you know, platforms like DYDX or you know Bitmex obviously is kind of the OG of of being able to inject some leverage into the system um, oh. in order to to start testing those waters and start having markets develop around it. So that's a little bit of a milk toast answer, I realize, but I I think that it is nuanced and I think that, you know, it is just a classic two-sided market problem. But I I to be honest, I don't see many funds really wanting or needing to hedge or have derivatives or anything of the sort yet. It's all just still playing at the casino, right? It's not yet a more sophisticated strategy. I would hesitate to say it's all playing at the casino. I think some of that is people going back to where we started this conversation, people trying to understand these fundamental questions, fundamental questions around how do you gauge differentiation? How do you identify what's unique? Once you identify a strategy, how do you spot where it works, where it doesn't work? How do we start to analyze business models and what data do we leverage? Or how do we start to analyze quote unquote token models, which even saying that word makes me feel 
so terrible, but I'm going to. And so that's why I think um, I like to call this episode square peg round hole. There's a little bit of a fundamental mismatch here. And the question we're asking is, can we take this group of assets that are poorly characterized, poorly described, poorly understood, try to jam them into a world that maybe just really doesn't operate that way? Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen, right? And I think that, you know, there's part of this question that is maybe they just mature over time. Maybe our understanding of them matures over time. And then also maybe the world shifts just a little bit in order to accommodate it and in order to make room for this new kind of paradigm. That's that's what I'm betting on. That is my hope for where this is all going. But it's 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 a long shot. It remains a long shot. And I think that, you know, in the meantime, we're going to continue to see the institutionalization of crypto as opposed to crypto actually changing any institutions in any meaningful way. Well, if there's one thing I've learned over the last four years, it's that we there's there's so many things of what we're doing here that are not new. And there are a few things we were doing that are new. And I really always try to remind myself it's all about your mental model. It's all about continually adjusting and adapting your mental model and really trying to view the world through the lens of your end audience. And that if there's one thing that I take away from this, the one thing I've been trying to focus on more is how do we start to view the world of crypto assets through the lens of the audience we're trying to appeal to, which is investors who have lots of liquidity and lots of capital to pump into the system. That's really what what we're looking for here. And if we can start to think about that question, that's going to inform a lot of how we talk, how we phrase, how we position, how we analyze, which will be very interesting. I think that's right. And we'll see what happens next in this wild ride. (laughs) If anything, it's very fun and you and I get to spend time together. What more could a girl ask for, Jill? The real Satoshi is the friends you make along the way, right? Oh, goodness. Um, That sounds like such a... We need a book of crypto platitudes, like a chicken noodle soup for the soul, but for the crypto community. All right. That'll be the next side hustle. (laughs) With that, I think that we'll wrap up here. But, you know, a few takeaways from this. Don't think of crypto as a single asset class. Don't try and plug the square peg into the round hole of institutional finance. And for everyone who's listening, we have shared some of the data points we talked about, some of the ideas we talked about in the show notes. Would love to have you read them, comment, link to other resources you've found helpful in starting to define some of the assets. Really looking forward to seeing how you're framing this world, especially if you're an investor who's trying to form a thesis and sell that thesis to institutions. Hi, everyone. Meltem and Jill here. 
To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.